welcome to the April 2022 NEFA Coaches Corner. Great to be back. Really excited tonight. Really interesting topic ahead for us over the next 90 minutes or so. Can't wait to see what we're going to get out uh, the next hour and a half. As always, I am joined by NEFA's Head of Academy, Spencer Fern. Good evening, Spencer. How are you? I'm very well, Ryan. How are you? I'm absolutely fine, thank you. Good. Busy day? Oh, you know, you know it's been a busy day. It's always a busy day for me. I get greyer every every time we do this webinar. I just can you see this grey? It's um Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. You don't think you were 24, would you really, right? You, you wouldn't, you would not, you would not. Well, good evening, everybody, uh, and welcome to the April Nefer Coaches Corner. And tonight's guest is Jonathan. McKinstry, who became the youngest international coach in world football and was appointed a Sierra Leone manager at just 27 years of age, leading them to a top 50 FIFA ranking, which FIFA described as remarkable. He then moved to Rwanda, where he led them to a quarterfinal in the CAF Nations Championship. After roles in domestic football in Bangladesh and Lithuania, he was back in Africa as manager of the Ugandan national team, where he achieved a remarkable 67% win rate before moving on last year. Now, Johnny is a UEFA Pro License coach and has been on an absolutely remarkable journey, and we're looking forward to him sharing his knowledge with us this evening. Now, before we get into the questions from myself and Ryan, and hopefully you, the audience, we have our little question, don't we, Ryan? Of course, we like to get we like to get the mental juices flowing with people joining the call tonight. So, of course, I've I've gone topical. I think it's a difficult one tonight, Spencer. I really, really do. So, uh, I'll I'll pop it up. And the question is, the question is, which five African countries have qualified for the 2022 World Cup? So. Have a go uh, at that. You can only one selection is right. It's pretty difficult tonight, I think. Whilst you are having a go at that, let me run through uh, a little bit of the house rules. So, if you do have a question uh, for Johnny uh, this evening, and we hope you've got plenty, please pop that in the Q and A box. If you've got any general comments about what you're hearing, or you'd like to share some of your contact information, then it's the chat box that but questions in the Q&A box please so I'll just give that a few more seconds or oh, it looks like looks like we have got a very very smart set of listeners tonight Spencer um so uh, I, I'll, I'll I'll stop it there Spencer did, did you want to did you have a, a you Spencer you're going to the World Cup so I want to know, have you got any of these nations in your selection of tickets? No, I have a feeling I have the Ghana games. Oh, OK. All right. Well, you, you, you've, you've given the result away there. Um, uh, because, yeah, yeah. yeah. The result absolutely is Senegal, Cameroon, Ghana, Morocco and Tunisia. So fascinating to see how those guys will get on a bit later in the year. Okay, well, thanks, Ryan. Well, good evening, Johnny, and welcome. Good evening, guys. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. So it's uh, great you're giving up your time this evening to join us. So, Johnny, um, can you give us a, a bit of background about how you ended up in Sierra Leone and what your initial role was when you arrived there? 
Yeah, so Sierra Leone sort of came out of the blue a little bit, although it sort of went back to a previous relationship that had been developed a number of years earlier. I was working in New York with the New York Red Bulls in their academy system, working with sort of like the 10 to 14 year olds and just working away and just signed a new contract, new visa and was, you know, very fulfilled in that role. And it was actually just ahead of July 4th one year, I got a call from an old sort of acquaintance of mine, uh, Tom Vernon, who some people on the call may, um, may know the name. He set up the Right to Dream uh, Academy in Ghana, and now obviously the main ownership group of FC Norseland in mm -hmm. Scandinavia. And I'd been out to Right to Dream for maybe four or five weeks whilst I was still at university and had got to know Tom and the staff there and the players in Ghana. And really, he, right to dream, and, and Tom had been asked to come in as the consultants to set up Craig Bellamy's new academy and foundation in Sierra Leone. And they were looking for a new technical director. And he felt both just in terms of my interest in African football from when I'd been there, we'd stayed in contact over the years. We'd met up in New York when he visited um, sometime later. And he just felt I might be a good fit for that technical director role to launch what was a brand new academy in Sierra Leone. And yeah, it was, it came out of the blue. It wasn't something I'd expected. I'd only actually signed a new agreement with Red Bull maybe a month earlier to extend my stay for another three years. And um, it came out of the blue and was a lot of sort of soul searching. Was it something I wanted to do? You know, I was only 24. Um, only 24 at the time, and you're being asked to sort of give up New York and Manhattan <laughs> for Sierra Leone and West Africa, and it's it's a big choice to make. But ultimately, I decided to take it, and yeah, it was a remarkable sort of journey going to Sierra Leone and working with these amazingly talented and passionate young players um, at the age of only 24 for me. And you mentioned there, Johnny, that you just signed a deal with with Red Bull as well with New York. So, I mean, I mean, how how did the negotiations go there? Do you know, it was. I have to say, New York Red Bull, from my time, were a fantastic organization to work for. I believe they still are. I've done bits and pieces with them over the years, but it's not just about the ability to go out and give be given the opportunity to go and coach real quality young players that I was getting and the sort of you know, autonomy I was provided with. Yes, New York had their structure, Red Bull had their way of doing things, but equally they gave you as a coach the freedom to express yourself within their framework. And this was fantastic. But what was beyond that was how people treated people. Um, you know, how right through the club, whether it was from the very top management down to, you know, the guys who were managing you directly, the support and the guidance and the conversations you had with all of these people were fantastic. I informed them of what the situation was when the offer got made to me. And I said, look, I want to be honest with you. Because even in the point where I was agreeing to stay, it was one of those things that, you know, I, I could see my long-term future in New York. But at the same time, I said to them, but you know, football, things can change very quickly. And if ever that situation changes, I will come and let you know so that we can figure out the path forward together. And, and so I did. I went and said, look, I know we've only agreed this all in the last month or so, but this has happened. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I promised you I'd tell you. And so I did. And I definitely wrestled with it for a long time. But 
genuinely New York did two things that made my choice a lot easier for me. Number one was they said to me, look, we want you to stay, but we also understand this is a great opportunity. And if you want to go, if you feel you need to go, we'll support that decision. And if it doesn't work out, then you can always come back to Red Bull, to the Red Bull family. So that was a huge safety net that was thrown out beneath me by an organization, which was fantastic. And then the next thing was my direct line manager, Simon Barrow, said to me, I was really torn about this and I didn't know what to do. And I had a meeting with him. I had to make a decision. And he said this to me, he said, is it that you're not sure you want to go or you're not sure whether you want to leave? And it was a great question because I was sure I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to take the opportunity, but it was like, I wasn't sure if I didn't want to leave. I wasn't sure about leaving because I love New York. I love the people. I love the club. And ultimately, when you combine those two things, if I knew I wanted to take the opportunity and the Red Bull had been very clear that if it didn't work out, there would be a place for me. It really made taking the jump a lot easier. But like how many organizations do you encounter who would not take that approach? You got to remember, I was I was a 24 year old coach working with 13 and 14 year old kids. So it's not like they were talking with the first team manager or something like that. They took that human first approach to me and I'll always be eternally grateful for it. And yeah, in my, you know, you, yeah, people can say what they want about Red Bull, but as an organization, but as a people first entity, fantastic. Look, it's, that sounds like something from a, a like a love film. Certainly that line, do you, do you want to leave or is it you not going to stay? Like, oh, that's absolutely fantastic. But you did leave, you did leave and you did go. Um, so, you know, what, what I'm interested in, like, look, here in England, we've got some managers that fail to adapt, that come from London and can't adapt for managing up in the northeast, for example. Um, you're moving continents, you know, in terms of, of, you know, the size of the economies, the nature of the economies, the nature of society. This is a seismic shift for, uh, for, for you. Um, you know, what did you do in the build-up to go in to build your knowledge about culturally what it was going to be like? Um, and then how much did that you know match up to the reality of the first few days of being there? Well, you know, for me, I've always been a very optimistic type of person. There's, I don't know if people on the call have done that, where you can do your sort of, it's like one of those psychological tests that tells you what type of profile type you are. Okay. And I'm one of the profile, I can't remember the exact letters for me, but the profile type I am is I'm the person who sees how things can be. So I look at a thing and I don't see, you know, ingredients. I see the final dish. I see how things can be. And so with Sierra Leone, you naturally go and you get on the internet and you start doing research. Yeah. And I watch two videos that were on the internet google videos or youtube videos or whatever it was about sierra leone there were little 30 40 minute documentaries and the first one had been filmed maybe 10 years previously and it was about child soldiers after the civil war and the reintegration of child soldiers and obviously this isn't a great thing to be watching when you're thinking of moving to a country not many countries have child soldiers let's be honest Um, and so you're watching that and seeing the horror of the civil war and then the next documentary was maybe filmed five years before so there'd been five years past from the first one but still a little bit before i was going 
And it was all about sanitation and how the sewers need sorted out and all this thing. And again, it wasn't a nice movie. I'm not going to tell you it was a nice, happy-go-lucky film. It was quite heavy. But in my mind, I thought, well, nobody talks about child soldiers. Most countries don't have that. And it's not an issue on the global, on the national psyche. Whereas every country is worried about sanitation and sewers and all of that stuff. So now in five years, Sierra Leone's moved away from a unique bad situation to a common situation. And for me, in my head, I thought, well, that shows the progress that the country's making. And it showed me it was going in the right direction. And as long as it was going in the right direction, I thought, yeah, let's, let's throw ourselves in at the deep end. Excellent. So when, when you're in um, Sierra Leone, did you have to change any of your coach behaviours at all to really adapt to the culture that you were entering? I think, so Sierra Leone is a very incredibly warm culture. Um, people want to talk to you. They want to be very tactile. You know, it's a very busy, you know, standing room only in the streets and markets. Um, and people are very, very friendly. And I think, you know, coming from Ireland as well, we're very engaging generally as a nation and, you know, we'll speak with anybody. So I think that helps going into that environment. And um, one of the things that I definitely did have to adapt to, and it probably took me a year um, being there to really properly adapt is how I dealt with people how I managed people and, you know, people I was working with, people who were working for me, because I genuinely, I, I turned into a bit of an Irish Gordon Ramsay in the first year, because I was constantly being loud with people and constantly shouting when people couldn't do things. And, you know, it was, I was asking people to do simple jobs and they weren't able or weren't willing to do them. And, and I was giving myself a headache in terms of the frustrations that were building in me about why can people not do these things. But very quickly, I understood that we're not, well, not very quickly, several months later, you sort of start to understand that if we're always focused on what people aren't able to do or aren't willing to do, we're not going anywhere here. We simply have to figure out what people can and will do and focus on that. And over time, we can upskill and widen their skill base so that they can do more and are willing to do more. Um, but yeah, definitely, it was for me, that was a big learning curve in terms of how to focus on what people can do. And look, that's had a great impact on my career, because even now with players and everything, yes, we want to work on your weak points, but we're not going to dwell on them. We're not going to get you mentally to dwell on them. Because if you do that, we're all going to be sitting around, you know, miserable. Whereas if we can focus a bit more on what we can do, then it, it just creates that positive energy around us. Sounds like a good mantra for me. I think I think I might take that back to my wife, actually. And, uh, you know, you need to focus on things that I'm good at. Not, no, yeah, not the latter. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Um, Clearly, this work, clearly this approach, clearly the effect that you were having um, was being recognised by the, the Federation. Were you, were you aware of them thinking, yeah, we like what he's doing? And then how did that uh, evolve in terms of your, uh, your own role there evolving as well? Yeah, so obviously the academy was the only professional football academy in the country. We were a residential entity. The players, you know, boarded with us. They went to school with us. They trained with us. We had the best young players between the age of like 12 and 17 in the country. Yeah. And so we we started to garner a reputation, you know, in order to get 
competitive games or under 12s would play against local U16 sides and still win, you know, or under 16s would be playing against men's sides and winning. So we obviously created a bit of a ripple in terms of Sierra Leonean football. I was about a year prior to, um, to taking the senior men's national team, I was asked to come and work with the junior national team. And I sort of went and watched a session that they were running. It was, I think it was the under 18s. And I went and watched a session they were running. And afterwards, I just said, look, thank you for the offer, but no thanks. Um, primarily because my first thing I would have done in taking that role with the junior team would have been to drop half the players and call up half of my academy players. Um, and I just looked at it and thought, my players are better than these players. But and so I would be doing it for genuine reasons, but I could see the huge conflict of interests in it. And so I just thought I'm going to step away from this because it wouldn't be good for me. It wouldn't be good for the players, wouldn't be good for the FA or the academy. So I'm just going to I'm not going to do it. Thank you. But I'll support you in any way. But I shouldn't be involved in the actual junior national teams because of that conflict. So clearly there'd been an awareness of what I was doing in the lead up to actually getting the senior job. So obviously the under-20s and uh, obviously rejected because it was a conflict. Um, what happened with the first team post? Was it an approach a year later or was it via an agent? Or how did that work? How did that come about? So as with many things in football, they happened quite quickly. Um, Sierra Leone had played an away game against Tunisia and I believe they lost it. And it basically meant they were very unlikely to qualify for the World Cup. It was the Brazil 2014 World Cup qualifying series and it was very unlikely they would qualify still mathematically possible but not likely and so the Swedish coach at the time decided to resign suddenly and obviously there's a game in like three weeks or a month and a half or something like that and it would with little chance to qualify three games remaining two in June one in August it was the, the word on sort of the football grapevine in Sierra Leone was that they were going to appoint a, a local coach, a domestic coach. Just like who, who's top of the Sierra Leone Premier League? Let's appoint their coach was basically the mantra. Um, it means they wouldn't have to pay flights for a coach, visas for a coach, all the things that go with employing a coach from outside your borders. And when I heard that, I just thought, you know what? I'm the only a licensed coach in this country. Wow. Not even a cafe licensed coach in the country. I'm the only A license of any description in this country. And get me in a room to have a chat with the guys. So we made a few phone calls. Obviously, we're connected in football circles anyway through the academy. We made a few phone calls. They agreed to meet with me. We put together a couple of dossiers, one on, um, one on what we felt the future for Sierra Leone football could be and the senior national team over the next sort of three years, five years. And then the other one was how our next game was also against Tunisia in Freetown and we had to win it to stay in the race for the World Cup. And we put a dossier on how we would beat Tunisia and presented this. That was with, and, and it was an initial meeting. And then there was a second meeting where the, the general secretary of the FA and the minister of sport for the country were involved in the second meeting. And we presented again and yeah, two or three days later, got the phone call and said, look, we'd be interested in offer you, you know, a contract for these three games. So it was obviously not huge risk for them. It met their requirements of someone being in country. And, you know, it was right time, right place for me, really. Excellent. 
So, I mean, during your, your tenure, Johnny, you had to work through the Ebola crisis. Uh, and unfortunately, the country had suffered disruption due to the civil war, you know, a, a decade earlier. Um, how did these two external factors impact on the, the image that you were trying to create for the national team and for the country as well? Yeah, I think, like, for us, one of our big things with the Sierra Leone national team, there was so much going on around us that we, from the very beginning, we sort of took a mantra of let's build a wall around this team. You know, everything that happens outside, all the noise that's going on, people talking, whether it's in government or the federation or media, let's just focus on us. Don't worry about all of that stuff outside the room, only worry what's going on inside the room. So that was a mantra we sort of developed um, within ourselves. And look, the Civil War, in essence, didn't have a huge impact on us in, in our how we went about the job because it was so long ago in practical sense. You know, you're sort of talking it was 20 years past by this point. And Sierra Leone had moved on as a country. You know, they'd left it behind them. Um, still feeling the scars of it, but in a psychological way, I'd left it behind. Um, the Ebola outbreak was another thing completely. We were going in a great direction We'd moved from mid-90s in the world rankings to 50th. And then all of a sudden, we're not able to play home games anymore. Um, there was serious talks went on about withdrawing from the qualifying series completely um, because of what was going on in the country. But I think it was someone from government came in and said, no, we do want the team to play. Um, and so we really took it on ourselves to say, look, We've got to, you know, give people a bit of a, a good day. There's so much going on that's bad, both inside Sierra Leone, but then also the image people have outside of Sierra Leone. So if we win, if we perform, A, the image that's being broadcast around the world, at least for one news cycle, stops being about Ebola for five minutes and turns to Sierra Leone's football team having done something remarkable, but also for people in the country. And I think you saw that when they qualified for the African Cup of Nations this year, you know, the streets filled with people, you know, they're so passionate. So again, it was going through an awful time as a nation with the Ebola outbreak. But if we can win, if we can perform, then for one evening, for one afternoon, people are going to forget about all of that and they're going to put a smile on their face. So that was really a big, you know, a big motivator for us going into that qualifying series. And with the, the qualifying series, I mean, so you didn't play the games at home, did you? Were they all away from home? or? Yeah, it was frustrating. I think now, obviously, it's become a lot more commonplace with the pandemic that teams haven't necessarily played at home and they've chosen to play elsewhere for or in centralised venues. But back then, it wasn't that common. And... For whatever reason, maybe a bit of disorganization because it came around so suddenly, but it wasn't even that we managed to secure a neutral venue. What the FA were basically forced to do was in order to compete in the qualifying series, we went to our opponents and said, look, do you want a double home game? Wow. So the two games against Cameroon were scheduled to be played in Cameroon, the two games against the Ivory Coast in the Ivory Coast, and the two games against DR Congo in the DR Congo. So not only are you not at home, you're not in an empty stadium in a third country either. You're in an away stadium with a partisan crowd for what is supposed to be your home game. So it was the most difficult circumstances imaginable for trying to qualify for a tournament. And, and, and Johnny, I imagine there was like fairly sort of rigorous testing in terms of 
departure, which was obviously pre-COVID. You know, I'm, I'm kind of had an experience of it before. It was, was that was that right? Lots of testing before the games, and yes. Um, so again, and I think look, people have spoken. There's no necessary hard and fast evidence about it during the COVID pandemic, but ultimately there's been accusations that maybe testing protocols and host nations are played with a little bit in terms of to make it more awkward for the visiting team. We definitely felt that during the Ebola crisis. Like, I understand they had to do temperature checks on us. I'm not sure they had to happen at 6 a.m. in the morning, you know, when the players are in bed in the hotel. So that's what I mean. Yes, absolutely. Come and test all the players, take their temperatures three times a day. No problem at all. Does it have to happen at 6 a.m.? Or could it happen at 8.30 when they're coming out for breakfast? So those little things, wow. um, definitely, they're playing by the rules, but they're definitely translating the rules in a favourable, you know, format. Yeah, it's not the easiest group anyway, is it, Johnny, really? I mean, what a tough qualifying group that was. A hundred percent. And obviously Ivory Coast went on to win AFCON that year and DR Congo were bronze medalists. They finished third. So, and but you know what? We went into it believing we would qualify. And that was when only one team qualified, only one, only the group winners. We went in and we believed we could win that group. Um, I only played two games of that group before leaving the role, but we were one nil up against the Ivory Coast for a long time in that game. And they came back in the last 10 minutes to win 2-1. And then a really bad mistake from us let them win it. And then away to DR Congo, where we had a nightmare journey to get there. And it should have been our home game. And we were again nil-nil until the last 10 minutes. And tired legs just killed us a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if all things being equal, we had a real belief that we could do something in that group and qualify for AFCON, which people might think it's crazy when you say those names, but where we were at that moment, we were in a really good place and it just completely derailed us. One last question on Sierra Leone before, before we leave Sierra Leone. What would you say were the main successes that you had there and the parts that gave you the most satisfaction? So I think there was two things, really. I think with the academy role, um, the amount of players who've went on, and, you know, we only really had sort of in my time there, sort of 30, 32 players come through during my time. Mm. And of those sort of 30 players, I think we currently have seven professionals, either in America, Europe, or Asia. Wow. And um, we also then have another seven or eight who are in college in the US, of which three or four of them we would expect to go pro. So that's over two age groups, 30 players, and you're looking probably 11, 12 of them will go professional at a good level of the game. That's a really high percentage. So it shows our recruitment was good at a young age, and it shows our process worked to a degree. And um, the other thing really was just with the Sierra Leone national team, we, we reduced the age of that national team significantly. Not only did we get up, you know, to top the 50th position in the world ranking and seventh in Africa, but we also reduced the average age of the team from around 29, 30 to about 22, 23. Gosh. 
And a lot of the players, we, we give so many debuts to guys who were 16, 17, 18, 19. And a lot of those players played at the African Cup of Nations this year where they're now mature you know i was texting them and whatsapping them ahead of games and stuff and being involved you know not that i'm being involved but giving them support from a distance you know and i've met up with a few of them and still speak to a lot of them who were you know young men still kids really when we when we brought them into the setup and it's great to see them going on and being successful and is the foundation still going there no, um, a couple of years after I left, I think ultimately, a bit like you're seeing now, a lot of businesses and organizations having huge challenges because of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Imagine the exact same thing happening in Sierra Leone. Um, as an organization, you know, I've been there five years and then stepped away at the end of my contract and it continued on for another couple of years. But I really just feel a lot of the revenue streams dried up because yeah. in-country sponsorship really dried up because of the Ebola outbreak. Yeah. But then also, whereas everyone in a global context for COVID understands they maybe need to support things, Ebola was something that was happening over there. Mm. And so again, getting international organizations to maybe step up and go above and beyond what they normally do. I believe I wasn't there, but I, I understand it was a challenge finance-wise yeah. afterwards. I can imagine. So <laughs> I imagine early days, you hadn't envisaged being in Sierra Leone, uh, but there you are, there you are operating. Um, so I imagine it was perhaps even more far-fetched if someone would have said, oh, yeah, you're going to be Sierra Leone and then Rwanda. So how's that come about? By, by the way, it's 3,000 miles. It's not It's not round the corner, is it? How has um, that come about? Yeah, do you know, after Sierra Leone, I needed a break. And people talk about now needing a break from the game. And definitely just because you got to remember, I was double jobbing. I had the national team and I had the academy. So for the last two years in Sierra Leone, I was largely doing two pretty significant jobs wow. and um, pretty high pressure jobs. And so I needed a break. And I took a bit of a football holiday, let's call it. I traveled around Asia for sort of a couple of months and went and watched a lot of games, met a lot of people, saw different parts of the world that I hadn't been to, came back and did a bit of punditry for um, on the TV for the African Cup of Nations. And then it was really right, what opportunities are there out there? And my profile was in for a few things. And funnily enough, two national teams made me the exact same offer at the same time. Basically a team in the Caribbean and Rwanda. And both of them, the packages, the length of contract, everything was largely identical. And yeah, it was just a case of, so it very much was, you know, put your profile in. Um, the technical director at the time in Rwanda was an English guy who I'd met at a conference before, but we, we didn't know each other other than having met over drinks at a FIFA conference. And, um, but yeah, we interviewed with Rwanda and, it ultimately came down. I remember even the decision-making process of, do I go to the Caribbean or do I go to Rwanda? <laughs> and I sort of, and I still, this is still the question. It's which job will they shout at you more if you lose a match? And I thought in the Caribbean, it was more of a slow burn. They'd be happy with development over a few years and gradually build up. Whereas at Rwanda, we're about to host the African Nations Championship, you know, 18 months later. 
and it was if we didn't perform you know they would not be happy whatsoever and I just sort of thought yeah that's the environment I want to be in I want to be in the environment where the pressure's on where there's a fire underneath you the first month in any role, uh, really, John, what are like, the key things that you're looking for in those first four weeks? It's a, The first thing that, and I've got better and better at this over the years, is creating an environment where everyone else is willing to talk. Um, when you go into a lot of environments, and especially in some of the countries I've been to, there's this real hierarchical structure where you've been brought in as the boss, you've been brought in as the foreign expert. And so everyone's there to basically, you know, dance to your tune sort of thing. And whereas for me, I need everyone else to give their input because I've not spent a single day in Rwanda before I arrived there. I don't know Rwandan culture. I don't know what it's like growing up in Kigali. I don't know what challenges these guys are facing on a day-to-day -day basis what their home lives are like all of these things and so I need the people around me whether they're technical staff or they're people in the offices or whatever I want them to share what they think with me and that doesn't happen naturally people don't want to share because they don't want to say the wrong thing they don't want um they also don't necessarily want to share something because they think, oh, if, if I think something different to what they think, then they're not going to be involved anymore. They think they want to mirror back at me what I, what I think. And so, yeah, for me, that's always the first month is about, yes, talking to people, but almost awkward silences as well. You know, basically me turning around going, Spencer, what do you think about this? And then you might give me a little small answer to try and get out of talking. And then I'll be like, yeah, please continue. And just letting the silence be there. And, you know, to the point where you're like going, well, this is a bit stupid. I need to talk. And then, you know, trying to make light of that and just making people comfortable that they can have a conversation with you. And once you bring down those walls, I think everything else happens so quickly. Um, but unless you do that, if you just go in and start talking to everybody and talking at people, because that's what it ends up being, it's talking at them, then the walls stay up and nothing really changes. So yeah, it's it's about creating an environment where people feel comfortable to talk to you. Yeah. And in terms of you know building that trust, Johnny, so you, you go in and you meet your, your team, five, ten people, whatever, would you meet them individually and get to know them like on a, a personal level, what their interests are, about the family? That kind of stuff yeah absolutely um we do things in groups we do things individually um sometimes we've put like barbecues on to have people around and be a bit more in a relaxed environment um sometimes it's like go for a walk i'm a great believer in recent years of when someone is having a meeting get out of the office you know um i, I try as often as possible not to have meetings sat across a desk from people you know, I usually have a sofa and armchairs in the room where we're having a coffee or something. And these are all very simple things, but it's about can you can you put people at ease? If you are going to have a meeting with people in your room, make sure they can see the door. Like these are little things. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. The idea if people can't see the door, if you sit them in your office and the door's behind them, it puts them on edge already because they can't see how to get out. It's like that fight or flight thing. Yeah, yeah, if, you yeah. them in a, if you put them in a position where they can see the door, 
it immediately relaxes them on some primeval subconscious level. Um, so all of these little things, you know, I'm, I love table tennis. I've had a few meetings over table tennis with coaches and players before. So it's, you know, all of these things, can we relax? Can we put you in a comfortable place where you're open and you want to have a conversation? Brilliant. Yeah, my, my next question was pretty closely linked to a question that we've uh, had in from one of the listeners. So I'll, I'll try and I'll try and merge the two. And, and really it was alluding to what you were touching on there in terms of how you take existing uh, culture and then how much of a role that plays in terms of the principles you agree. Um, uh, the question here from uh, C.R. Lunas, I think. So I, I, I'm not sure if that uh, if I've said that right, but the question was, how do you think from an individual and collective cultural perspective, um, you manage to connect with players in order to trans transmit your coaching uh, messages and guidance? Would you say you needed to change or learn or evolve more about the, the methods of coaching? I'm guessing the, the existing cultural methods of coaching in that place in a shorter amount of time um, in that respect. Yeah, so I think... And it comes back to something we touched on a little bit earlier. It's the idea of there's the global culture. And when I say global, I just mean global for the environment. So what's the culture in that country, in that city? But then what is the culture of that family, of that individual, of their background? And so I think understanding that, it's very... I, I've had meetings, and I do it all the time. See, especially with national teams or when we sign new players... I try to have one-on-ones with them in different environments that I think they'll be comfortable with. Or it might even be, like, God, I've been at a national team hotel where there's a new player. We've not had a squad before. I'll go knock on the door. It'll open. There'll be three or four players. They'll clear out because that was the FIFA room. And then I'll grab one of the controllers and I'll say to them, I'll be like, right, come on, we'll have a game. We'll have a chat while we're, while we're talking sort of thing, disarming them, but finding out about them, finding out what role do they play in their family? You know, I remember having, and I've had more than one player like this who from the outside is seen as stubborn or very money motivated or very, you know, aloof with others. And, you know, but then you go and chat to them and you find out actually he's from a one parent family. He's got three or four younger siblings. He's paying for them to go to college or school and stuff. And so now you're suddenly understanding this armor he puts on around himself. You really start to understand that. And see when you have that, that real interest in people, I think they, they start to put their trust in you, that you're not just after them to kick a ball around a field, that you care about them as an individual. And yeah, so it starts with the person. It's very much individualized. Now, don't get me wrong, the wider cultural context does come into it. You know, if you go into, let's say when I went to Bangladesh and you're obviously in a very sort of Islamic you know, yep. culture where people are very observant of it. Um, but do you know what? I Like, you even have moments, I find it, it was Ramadan one year in Bangladesh. And so the players are fasting. And I still remember one of our staff from the club who wasn't a technical member of staff, it was someone from the office who basically came to me and said, coach, you've got to tell them they're not allowed to do Ramadan that it, it harms players' performance in this country when they do Ramadan. You have to tell them no Ramadan if they want to play. And I said to him, I was like, I am not coming from a foreign country and telling people what and what to do and what not to do with their religion. 
I was like, I would never dare. And so what I said to players, I just said, and I was like, look, we will support it in as much what you want to do. You can choose to adhere to it or not. It's completely up to you. Please do inform us of what you are doing so that we can try and tailor things and we can try and make the best of the situation. But then I also did say to the players, look, you have to understand that if you are observing this and someone else in the team is choosing not to, they might have more energy than you. They And that might have an impact whether you're playing or not. But I'm not going to leave you out of the team because you're observing a religious practice. Yeah. It'll simply because we believe in that moment, person A is maybe in a better condition to play. But in the long term, it'll have no negative impacts. But I always find that amazing that a practicing you know, Muslim in the country was asking me to tell 20 other of his countrymen <laughs> that they weren't allowed to practice one of the most sacred sort of yeah. periods of the year. It was like going, oh, yeah, ask the foreign guy to do it so he gets in trouble, not me. Yeah. But, you, you know, Johnny, um, I guess it's a sort of viewpoint of, and, and it's probably a wrong viewpoint, and a sort of stereotypical view of, um, I guess, of Africa and African nations that, you know, that there is these... You know, still in existence, lots of um, uh, cultures and practices uh, we would find um, a bit strange in, in, in the Western world. Was that, that a reality? Was there, were, 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 were there things going on that you thought, like, wow, this is, this is sort of fits the stereotype or this is really difficult for me to manage? Yeah, do you know, in, in a negative way, no. I don't think there was any significant negative things. Like, look, I ultimately think I, I was dealing with young men, okay? So I can't really talk about what young groups of women are like in the countries I've been to. I was dealing with young professional men. And ultimately, the culture of young 18 to 25-year-old men is quite a global culture now. You know, it's everyone, everyone has that access on their phone and all of this. So there is a global culture that's developing that is set apart from the historical national culture. But you know what, there were some things you had to get used to in, in Africa. Um, every country I went into were very religiously observant. The players, you know, wanted to and felt they needed to pray before every training session. But equally, I then went to Bangladesh and in Bangladesh, they weren't as insistent that that had to happen. I asked about it when I went in, but I actually introduced it. Now, I'm not a religious person, you know, but I'm very respectful of it. I understand, you know, why people do it. I'm interested in it. But then I was the person going in and saying, look, guys, why don't we get together and, you know, you, one of you guys lead it, one of you guys, you know, give thanks before every training session, because I think it's a really nice way to center everybody and bring people in and focus them in and, and give thanks to maybe something greater than themselves, whether that's God, Allah, nature, whatever it happens to be. And that was something I picked up that I just thought was really centering and really focus sort of drawing in the African context, which was really good and real positive that you don't really see in Europe. I don't see too many teams in Europe, all the players coming together and praying before they do a training session every day. But mm -hmm. I definitely liked it. I definitely thought it was beneficial. Okay, well, we're um, coming to the, the close of the first part, Ryan. So uh, yeah, 
put to Johnny with uh, your question for the audience. Yeah, so um, everyone on the call, maybe a slightly different question for you. Obviously, the guys have been asking me about, you know, different roles I've been in, sort of hopping from different countries to different positions. And I suppose for some of you people out there, it might be, you know, what's the next job? What's the next opportunity? And so the question I have for you is, you know, for you, what needs to be in place in order for you to say yes to an opportunity that you're presented with? Um, you know, so what needs to be in place for you to say yes to an opportunity? And this is something I think we should know beforehand. You should have a list so that when you're talking to a club or a federation, during those talks, you can say, yeah, they're hitting every box. I've got five things. If they hit all five, it's really easy for me to say yes to. If they only hit three of the five, it's really easy for me to say no to. And I don't need to wrestle with myself. And then I move on to the next thing. So, yeah, what needs to be in place for you to say yes to an opportunity? I think that's a fantastic question. So during the five minute break, if you can put your answers in the chat box for me, uh, we'll come and speak to a few people afterwards. But I think it's a really interesting question. So hopefully some interesting answers. Uh, we'll have a comfort break now. It's 16 minutes past now. So we'll be back. Uh, just around 20 past eight. So we'll see you very, very shortly.